Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I, along with my wonderful co-host, Bhumika Joshi, are in conversation with Dr. Tarini Bedi, author of the brand new book, Mumbai Taximan, Autobiographies and Automobilities in India. Dr. Bedi is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at University of Illinois, Chicago, Mumbai Taximan is her second book and was published by the University of Washington Press in 2022. Welcome, Tarini, on this show. We are so excited to have a chance to chat about your wonderful new book, Mumbai Taximan. Uh, but before we begin, we would absolutely love for our listeners to get to know you better. Um, what drew you to anthropology and how did you become an anthropologist? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sneha and Bhumika. I really appreciate uh, being here and uh, getting this chance to engage with you all at this, this sort of culmination of this uh, project, which both of you have been following, I know, for a long time and have been wonderful interlocutors for. Um, so in terms of anthropology, <laughs> you know, I think so my, my route to anthropology or at least academic anthropology I would say has been, to use a little bit of a metaphor from my own book, has really been more meandering, maybe through nakas and crossroads rather than necessarily through, you know, some kind of straight line from, you know, particular kind of education to where I am. Uh, So, you know, I perhaps rather unusually, you know, and I keep talking to young people, you know, now I'm in an anthropology department where we're always trying to recruit, uh, you know, people from high school into anthropology majors and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, I grew up actually in India and uh, I spent a lot of my adolescence in Mumbai. And in fact, in high school, uh, we had to choose, you know, in our plus two we had to choose to do arts, science, or commerce. And interestingly, I, of course, chose what was called arts, which I suppose in the American context is, you know, a lot of it is social, what would be called uh, both a combination of humanities and social sciences. But in fact, we actually had for our, um, you know, my uh, national exam, which was the, the Indian exam that we took at the end of the 12th standard or the 12th grade, I actually took both sociology in my 11th grade and anthropology in my 12th grade. Uh, So, of course, this was in India where anthropology was somewhat, you know, structured somewhat differently. Uh, 
but I actually was aware of what this field was. Very often now young people are like, what the hell is an anthropologist? Uh, but I had some sense. And then I actually went to college in India uh, for, a, for, for a year at St. Xavier's College in Mumbai after I graduated. And I actually took a combination of history, uh, economics and anthropology. Those were my three art subjects. Um, so, you know, I feel like I had some sense of that there was this field out there called anthropology. But um, I ended up, you know, I, I came to the U.S. soon after that. Uh, after I did a year of college in India, I actually came to the United States to a small liberal arts college uh, for my B.A. degree where I, you know, we had we had no real disciplines. We just studied social science. It was a very kind of progressive, uh, creative kind of education where we could design our own majors and things like that. So I, I studied a combination of anthropology and politics and, and theater and poetry and all kinds of other things. Uh, I ended up majoring in what is called social science very broadly, in which anthropology was a field, um, and, and, and theater. So, um, but then I gravitated for graduate work. Actually, I was very interested in questions of politics in particular. And I somehow thought, even at that point, that, uh, you know, if I was interested in politics, that political science was the field to go into. So I, um, I actually worked for a, about a year right after college um, with a, um, you know, like in, in the corporate world, essentially, in New York City. Uh, I basically got fired six, seven months into my job and ended up then working for a theater company <laughs> oh, wow. in, in New York. Uh, it, it's called the 72nd Street Theater Company, where I started hanging out. You know, so I, I kind, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure at that point what I wanted to do, but I still went ahead and got, a, you know, went to a, a PhD program essentially in political science in Canada at McGill University. But, you know, a couple of years into that, I realized and I've read, I've heard a lot of other people on your NBN um, podcast that many anthropologists tend to kind of meander away from political science. Uh, I wasn't quite. Yeah. Oh, really? OK, well, there you go. So I wasn't really, you know, while I enjoyed the education, I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't particularly excited by the kinds of ways in which people, you know, that people were approaching politics. So I, I finished an MA in political science and I just, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to go, go on to do an anthropology PhD or not. Um, so I, again, ended up actually working for, I got a job with a market research company. Uh, and interestingly enough, they hired me as a survey researcher, but halfway through, they took one look at me and said, hey, do you want to be on our only organizational ethnographer? So I said, yes, of course. So I then actually spent many years uh, working with a market research firm as the only what they call qualitative researcher. And so I lived in multiple different places and I flew around America doing, at that point, what was called ethnography was largely just focus groups and things like that. So I just called myself an organizational ethnographer. I owned that title without actually being, you know, an anthropologist in uh, but I always thought anthropologically and things like that. So anyway, so I ended up 
uh, finally deciding uh, after five or six years working as a, you know, outside academia, uh, I finally decided that, you know, it's about time for me to perhaps get some serious training as, a, as an anthropologist, uh, whatever that might mean. And then I ended up doing a PhD in anthropology and, you know, here I am. That is such an interesting story. And Tarani, I have known you for a while now and I had no idea that this is how you became an anthropologist. So I'm really glad that, you know, we asked you this question to hear this very refreshing story, I guess, about becoming an anthropologist. Well, I wanted to say one thing, Sneha, that this is the way I became an academic anthropologist. I always feel like I always had this itch that somehow, you know, somehow this is perhaps where I wanted to end up but never quite knew how. Uh, and yeah, and so I, I meandered away, meandered around. Other people called me ethnographers and anthropologists. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is I also worked actually for several years. Oh, I forgot about, I worked for a couple of years as a, in a teaching and learning center at a universe at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And they hired me there only because I was, I was get, still getting a PhD in anthropology at the time. Because every time I, I went to work with faculty who were, you know, we were tra- sort of training faculty to develop curriculum and stuff like that. So every time I walked into someone's office, they would ask me, what is your training in? And I would say, uh, anthropology. Uh, okay, fine. That's fine. I thought, as long as you're not trained in education. So in some ways, I felt like I even got some respect. So it's quite interesting how people's perceptions of, uh, you know, anthropologists, outside the field uh, were quite interesting. So anyway, so that's how I became an academic anthropologist. But I feel like I was tagged with that, with that persona long before I actually became a real academic. Aren't, aren't we glad, Padme, uh, that you got fired from the job in New York and all of this transpired? Um, uh, you know, your sort of your... Uh, your anthropological itch that you speak of is so, so evident in everything that you write, and especially, especially in Mumbai Taxi Men. Um, and given this journey that you've had, uh, I think the, the next question really that uh, Sneha and I would like to ask you is, is the story behind this book? Um, and also if you ref- could you know, take this invitation to reflect a little bit on your previous book, uh, the Dashing Ladies of Shivsena, for those who don't know about it. Um, and it's your relationship with Bombay and Mumbai in general. And the story behind this this book uh, in particular is something we would love to hear you uh, hear from you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Bhumika. Um, you know, so um, how do books emerge? I guess this is a very important and interesting question. So I, as I said, you know, I'd spent quite a lot of time in Mumbai, uh, you know, as a, I think I, I actually was never, I was not born in Mumbai. I spent a great deal of my childhood uh, south of Mumbai. I actually uh, spent a great deal of my childhood in Hyderabad, which is uh, where, what Sneha is uh, familiar with, though I was born in Chennai, uh, which at the time was Madras, that's still on my passport, Madras, as my place of birth. But um, I, I moved to Mumbai as sort of a, you know, in, in as a young uh, you know not as a not as a child but as a young school going person and uh, that very fast became home for me whatever that might mean uh, and i you know of course i in this book in in the taxi men book you you do 
especially in the first um, the introduction and the first chapter, perhaps readers see what, you know, my own struggle with what is a home and what is not. But uh, when I was really, you know, as I said, I was always interested in questions of when I was, my Shivsena book, Dashing Ladies, came out of my, what was my PhD dissertation. And I remember when I was thinking of, you know, what the hardest part of a PhD dissertation, of course, as you all know, is, you know, conceptualizing a project. And my advisor at the time actually said to me, he says, you know, I think people should pick things that are strengths for them, you know, pick something that because you're going to be living with this for a very long time, uh, choose something that, that you feel will strengthen you rather than weaken you. And I found that was very good advice. Uh, I had, in fact, lived in Mumbai for a long time, you know, but I had encountered Shiv Sena all over the place um, in, in political rallies. I read about them in the news and things, but I had never had personal sort of uh, serious sort of intimate uh, personal experience with anyone in the Shiv Sena party. My, my own family was, you know, staunchly, um, you know, Congress walas and, um, you know, so I hadn't really encountered them even in the electoral realm. But um, I, you know, I, I, my parents at the time actually had, you know, they had moved out of Mumbai, but they had bought a place in um, a, a suburb of Mumbai where Shiv Sena was actually quite active. And this is a suburb called Goregaon. Uh, it's a northwest suburb of Mumbai. So I started, you know, I, I, I um, I started to, you know, think, well, you know, let me start going to some of their meetings. They had these shakhas very close by. And I very quickly became almost like adopted by many of the women who I was working with, you know, and I became this odd, and this is where you say, you know, how do you become an anthropologist? You know, I was sort of incorporated into this this work, um, in, into this, this community of Shiv Sena women. It was though I, of course, had plenty of interaction with men in the party, but I became this almost, uh, you know, they would almost refer to me as a, as a Punjabi, which is, you know, and in Mumbai, all of your, your ethnic affiliations and all of these things are so important to your politics and how you get perceived and what your labor, you know, how you access the economy and all of these kinds of things. So I kind of got incorporated in with these, with these women who would pre, would, you know, call me either a Punjabi Maharashtrian or a English Maharashtrian or, a, you know, so it was this very interesting kind of ethnic um, affiliations that they gave me. But anyway, I became quite uh, interested in how these women actually engaged in politics. And I moved around Mumbai quite a bit with them. I also went, you know, again, most of my work, and you'll see this even in this work, is that I'm, all, I'm interested in the city of Mumbai, but I'm quite interested in how people move between Mumbai and other places that they either call home or they call political constituencies, et cetera, et cetera. So I went, you know, so that's basically, I, I, I learned a lot about the city of Mumbai, but I also worked quite a lot with that book when I was working on that book in other cities in Maharashtra. Uh, I, I did a lot of work in Nashik. I did a lot of work in, uh, in Pune. I traveled quite a bit with these women uh, on electoral campaigns down the Konkan coast on the western coast of India, uh, because this is where many of them actually came from. You know, they are, they were they they still had family roots there. 
So, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I would say my interest in Mumbai comes from just, you know, and this is kind of the interesting thing about working in South Asia more generally, but working in Mumbai in particular, that all of the things that you you know or take for granted about politics kind of get upended there. Uh, largely because it's a, you know, it's a linguistic polyglot. It's uh, so the way in which people talk about what's going on in politics is quite, you know, in linguistic terms is very, very, very important. And I think this is one thing that you might see a lot in this Mumbai Taxi Man book. My, I pay a lot of attention, I feel, to, I've always been very interested in how people use language to describe things that we otherwise take for granted in, in kind of the Western canon. Uh, so this book, uh, the, the Mumbai Taximan book, um, I I had encountered a lot of the neighborhoods in which I did did I in in, uh, in which I worked um, for Mumbai Taximan. I had already encountered a lot of those those bastis and things like that uh, when I was working on my previous work. Um, so in some ways, I would say that. Uh, there is some connection between the two books insofar as they happen to emerge in the same city. And, uh, you know, they are about how people move around Mumbai for various different things, whether it's for politics or labor or livelihood. But, um, but I think that the Mumbai Taximan book departed quite a bit insofar as it came out of a certain, a different kind of love for the city Whereas Shiv Sena, the Shiv Sena book came out of, uh, you know, a certain kind of curiosity about the city. So I would say that maybe that's how these two books might be quite different. One is curious, came out of genuine curiosity. The other one has come out of curiosity, but there's also a certain sense of love and a certain sense of loss, I would say, or nostalgia, as you will ask for me later, um, which I'm, which I'm, you know, I, 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 I own, I'm somewhat ashamed of it sometimes, but I've learned to own that kind of feeling of loss for, with this new project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, then I think we should actually talk about that at this point since we've, you know, it's come up in conversation, but early on in the book and in some of the conversations we have had in the past and like, you know, as you were speaking just now, um, you have thought through these affordances of writing and thinking with nostalgia as a temporal orientation, right? So, I would love, uh, we would love to know more about why is nostalgia so key to the way you've written Mumbai Taxi Men and what sort of provocations does it um, offer to anthropologists, this whole writing to, through nostalgia? Yeah, <laughs> uh, thanks. So, so you know, Sneha and Bhumika. So the thing is that I think, you know, as I, I think any piece of work whether, you know, creative work, written work, you know, whatever we're doing, uh, I think emerges at different points in one's uh, life, you know, one, one's own life cycle, I suppose. And I, you know, I think that that's hard to acknowledge sometimes. And um, in this book, so the, the question of nostalgia comes up, of course, as you mentioned, Sneha, as a, as a temporal uh, affordance or a temporal way of thinking but you know nostalgia of course has all kinds of moral connotations right and it's usually um, I don't know a um, you know often it's associated with particular kinds of 
conservatism and all of that. And certainly I'm aware, you know, in, in the Indian context, of course, all of these questions of nostalgia are tinged with a lot of very problematic political um, political uh, positions. So which is why I'm a little, un- you know, I, I, I perhaps am a little uncomfortable with it. But at the same time, those of us who are doing research and field work in places that, you know, that we do have connections to, uh, long-term connections to, um, I think we, 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 for us, I think sometimes nostalgia can actually be kind of a, a radical way in which to claim one's own place or long-term history in a place without necessarily suggesting that you know, our own experience is the only way to go. And I feel like nostalgia, you know, as you see in the book, if, uh, that I play around quite a bit with this idea of nostalgia that comes from people like Svetlana Boyen, where I'm so interested in, in, and I came to see through my ethnography that my interlocutors actually deal with nostalgia in a remarkably um, skillful way. And that nostalgia became a way for me to, in some ways, connect with people that I worked with in a very, you know, in a in a more um, intimate way. And nostalgia also became kind of a shared social. So nostalgia is a social thing, you know. It's shared. It's uh, there are certain kinds of things that everybody uh, who grew up at a certain time in in the city of Mumbai shared in some ways. Um, even across class and across caste and across kind of religious affiliations. So I came to see that, you know, so much of understanding the city, so much of seeing the city, being in the city, dwelling in the city, was tinged with these kind of understandings of where we were, how do we find a place today, where do we go? And so I that's perhaps how I think with nostalgia. And, you know, this it's this other question of, when you say how does it, uh, what sorts of provocations does it offer to anthropologists? Um, you know, I think it's in some ways, you know, a way to to think about, to 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 maybe mediate this problem of you know what is a native ethnographer versus a you know non-native ethnographer, and I think that perhaps we can you know. Those of us who have connections, the reality is the more more of us who are working in communities, places that we that we have uh, intimate, either emotional or sensory connections to, uh, I don't think we can sidestep that question of, of 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 nostalgia. So I think this was also for me in this book a way to just contend with where my own position there, rather than making, you know, writing about me being a native ethnographer in a place that I call home, I really felt more compelled to be honest about the fact that, you know, I was writing through a certain kind of nostalgic understanding that um, that resonated for me and um, that, that, yeah, that perhaps as an anthropologist um, who works in a place that I once called home, um, I, I could be more comfortable with, and you know, to be honest, it was very, it was also a way for me to, to write in some ways, you know, because I felt like so many of my interlocutors were narrating and thinking about, uh, you know, a certain kind of excitement about being in a city that they had migrated to and that they were, you know, had sought out in many ways. They were these are not displaced people necessarily. 
you know, they come to the city because they want to be part of a certain kind of urban life. And so I felt like, um, you know, that was perhaps the, the just way to do it, even by my interlocutors, uh, but also for me as someone who, you know, who knows the city and has now, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now at a stage in my life where I actually have a certain kind of nostalgia with, with, a, with, a, with a longer, deeper past that I, I feel I needed to acknowledge. What a what a wonderful answer! Thanks for that question, Sneha, and thanks for that. Uh, you know the way you sort of described it, Tarani. Um, it's really useful to think with uh, for most of us. Uh, and you know, I the, you you rightly spoke about the politics of nostalgia. And interestingly enough, when I was reading your book, I was also thinking about the commerce of nostalgia because a lot of the taxi men that you're speaking to also speak of the taxi trade nostalgically. Uh, speak of their relationship with the village nostalgically, speak of sort of this, you know, staggered future that they are seeing unfold, almost, uh, you know, looking towards future with some nostalgia. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's such a useful way to think with nostalgia in so many ways. And um, following from that sort of that provocation that you gave us right now, um, there are there's also two other sort of concepts that um that you know flourish through the book i would say and that is of juna and jalu right and um uh, you've woven them, woven them in so beautifully and i would like for you to explain to our interviewers and sort of you know speak to us about what they mean and how you came about them for those people who read the book will know the story but uh, it would be lovely to hear you recant uh, your first impressions of Juna and Jalu and how they became such important and crucial categories to think through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Bhumika. Uh, you know, and this this is this is a great question. And um, you know, some people who have read the book actually mentioned that there's too many emic terms in this book. Uh, but at the same time, you know, and I, I'm empathetic to that, but at the same time, you know, there's so much literature. So I'll pick up the two terms, Juna, uh, Jal, I'll first pick up the term Jalu, which is, uh, for the read, for people who, you know, who are listening. Uh, so Jalu is sort of a, a term that uh, these hereditary drivers use to describe the kinds of, you know, social relations. So Jalu you know, most literally translates into in in uh, in several South Asian languages, but these are Gujarati speakers. Uh, Jalu translates into some kind of a, a web, and what they mean. So there's so much literature, of course, in the English language on networks and you know all of these kinds of things. And but I I you know and and a lot of the work obviously the question of networks is very big in any kind of access to livelihood right and how do you network so on especially white collar employment but in these communities you know people really use this term to describe uh, all of the various the, the term jalu or jal which is the uh, which is the the singular to describe all of the social and material relationships that were required for them to be successful in the trade. 
And a lot of these were not necessarily relationships that they sought out, uh, but they were relationships that sort of, you know, that wove themselves in and out um, through, you know, certain kinds of shared, uh, different different relationships of sharing in the trade, in the mechanics, in the politics of this taxi trade. So I actually use this term, I was quite adamant, you know, to, I've often been told actually saying, look, why don't you just use networks or social networks? But Jal and Janu don't really translate quite as easily because there's so many uh, other, you know, there are so many aspects of this question of nostalgia, the question of sort of a, a, sens- a, a sensory togetherness a, or what is called, you know, what some people might call sensible togetherness that incorporates people into this jalu uh, or this this web. So um, this is how I, I sort of use the term uh, because it was a term that came up again and again. So, you know, going back to some of my earlier conversation is that in this project, you know, and this is the interesting thing. I am, you know, I, I'm not a Gujarati speaker, but I grew up in Mumbai where I learned Gujarati because all of my friends spoke Gujarati. And I became quite attentive to how, uh, you know, language gets used uh, to describe, you know, social relations in different ways. And Jalu really became, for me, a very, of at least listening to, to my interlocutors, it was a very important social claim, but it was also a very important moral claim. Uh, and the reality is that, in fact, you know, for many people, you know, it's not that the Jalu always worked. There were plenty of people who actually felt let down by the the, the social net, the, the social webs that they were in. Um, they were often disappointed. So you know, so I'm not. I did find that uh, that that you know, thinking with this term that came up again and again was a way for people to really understand and talk about not only their, uh, you know, the, 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 the flourishing in this, in this web, but it also was a way for them to, to be quite honest with me and with themselves and with the fam- their families about how falling in and out of this web actually had serious ramifications uh, to, to their kinship relations, but also to their livelihoods. <clears throat> so so I, I, that's how I use the term Jalu. Juna is an interesting... Now, Juna, you know, is a term which, again, uh, I'm not sure if this is a term that, is, that comes up in other languages or in other cities. Uh, and I would ask both of you who work in other contexts whether this is a term that comes up there. It's a very commonly used term in Mumbai, actually. And Juna most literally means sort of, well, it can mean all kinds of things. It, but in Mumbai, it has taken on certain kinds of, um, it means old, but it also means original. It has a certain kind of moral connotation. In some ways, for those who are Juna, like these Juna taximen, these people, these men who have been driving taxis for a long time, they use the term to, to it's, it's sort of a, a moral claim of originality and therefore a right to the city in some ways. Um, and, you know, I was really struck, but, but then the, the, the same term is then used by politicians and the state and police 
to uh, to 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 claim that they are too old. You know, so Juna gets applied uh, both to the taximen, to the kind of livelihood, and also to the cars that they drive. So I was really struck by this Juna talk that happened all over Mumbai in all kinds of contexts, but especially when it came to taxis, because it really you know, it really brought up this question of, you know, what really is contemporary? Um, and, you know, how might we actually think about uh, who belongs and who does not uh, in a city? And what's interesting is that, you know, for technological objects, there are all kinds of other terms that are used actually in India, you know, so <clears throat> the, the term katara is very common to especially apply to cars, old cars. But what, what I found quite striking is that none of these men actually use the term Katara for their own cars. <clears throat> they always use the term Juna, which meant something else. And, you know, this is the thing about, um, about Juna talk or about what is old and what is new, uh, who can make certain kinds of claims. And Juna becomes a very important way to make claims on the state and claims on the city. And it's not just those who drive taxis. You know, you come across this Juna talk, what, what I call, I'm calling Juna talk, even in, you know, housing politics where, where, um, where people make claims to, you know, a certain kind of original, um, original claim to land and original claim to housing uh, in a particular place in so Juna is a very interestingly used term, which makes certainly is is quite um, I think is a is an important analytical concept. And you know this is the other thing that what what I'm trying to to suggest with these kind of more emic terms, is that you know Juna is an is an analytical concept which perhaps in the Indian context in the Mumbai context in particular might actually have a better you know more explanatory power than something like, you know, terms like urban, obs uh, you know, something that is obsolete or something that is old. Uh, because Juna has all of these other, it's it's kind of a vibrant term. And that's why I feel like uh, it, it became quite interesting. And it is an enormous way for people to claim, uh, you know, a, a certain kind of right to be there um, in a way that, nothing else really seemed to to do hmm. uh, thank you darling thank you that those are very useful explanations um especially for our listeners who you know uh, uh who i used who might use this as an invitation to read the book as well and we strongly encourage you to um you know following up from the description of juna that you were sort of just uh, beginning to get into uh, it's very clear from your book and from uh, the discourse on Mumbai in general and about the politics in Maharashtra as well, for anybody who's even partly familiar with it, is that the relationship between labor and claims to being old, original, or Juna, as you say, is a fraught one, right? And it, it's very pronounced in the, in, the, in the transport trade, not just the taxi trade, but taxi, it, you know, it's very emblematic of the taxi trade in, in Bombay, in Mumbai. And it's, I appreciate how you use that uh, in this in the ways in which the Chilean drivers are, you know, evoking that energy for themselves to make a claim. The particular question that I want to ask you, uh, and I would like you to think through your ethnography from the book as well, is to how do these claims of Junahood, right, of being original, of being authentic, perhaps, fit with the aspirations that the Chilean drivers 
may have for themselves and for the next generation of Chileans. Now, given that the social world of Chilean drivers is intimately woven with the, you know, doing the work of driving, what are the other kinds of work, trades, or labor that may sit well, or perhaps not, with notions of being Juna? For example, in your, you know, in, in the sort of beautiful episodes, uh, ethnographic episodes that you write about, there is Nuri and Bilal, um, a couple whose son is unable to join the taxi trade, but is then eventually able to join it. And, you know, he, drive, he drives taxis through different kinds of relational arrangements, uh, agreements and arrangements. Then another character known as Hamid is unable to join it when he wants to, but is finally able to join it. Uh, Farid is able to join it perhaps when he may have not wanted to. So in a way, what I'm trying to sort of, you know, read through the ethnography that you offer us is uh, what does being Juna actually inaugurate for those who claim it, for those who want to actively make it, particularly the guy at the end of your book, the Ola driver, who says that, you know, you think I can't be a Juna one day, that I cannot be original and authentic of the city one day in the future. What does he or people like him make for uh, make of Juna in that sense? So this is an offer for you to, you know, speak to these concerns and questions about being Juna and the claims of being Juna and making Juna in a city like Mumbai. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's such a terrific question. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Bhumika, I think that at least, you know, in terms of the material I have, that this question of Juna, you know, and originality, absolutely, you know, claims to originality are very much part, are, are, are in very important labor claims. Uh, and in fact, in Mumbai, you hear this from, from all kinds of workers, actually, you know, Policemen will say, "I'm a Juna policeman." Uh, you know, a you know a, a carpenter will say, "I'm a Juna carpenter." So a lot of people who are in the trades, right? What 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 requires a certain kind of or the assumption of what it requires a certain kind of expertise. Uh, so Juna is also, in some ways, to be honest, a way of claiming not just originality but also claiming expertise. Uh, it's also claiming mastery over something. And I think that, you know, just like you say, you, you, you give these wonderful examples of the, 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 some of the interlocutors in my book uh, who, who don't join the trade in, you know, in conventional ways. So I'm in no way actually suggesting, and I don't find in the book itself, in, the, in my research itself, that, that even that, and I think this is why I, I like to use the term that people use themselves, which is Juna, because Juna as a claim is not, it's not a linear claim. You know, it's not like, you know, I was here and now I'm, I've been here a long time, my family's, it's not simply that, though it is also that, but it's almost like a kind of a turbulent and chaotic claim, right? And it, it's a resource that people can use. Uh, it's, it's almost like this, you know, what, what might be called or thought of as like a folded claim. It's not a linear claim that you move from being one kind of, you know, an original person to being, uh, to having a right now to the city, to then venturing into the future. It's really a kind of a more chaotic kind of claim. Uh, and it works for people uh, to, to make, as I said, to actually make political claims, to try to get, uh, to gain resources. So it's not simply... 
you know, it's not simply a moral claim. It actually is, as you very well point out, uh, Bhumika, that it's, you know, it's used in the transport trades a lot. By, you know, claims to Juna are also claims to be able to gain certain kinds of resources. Uh, claims to Juna, uh, to be Juna also help, you know, is a way to, to suggest that you have a kind of collective uh, understanding or mastery over what happens in, in a trade or in a city. So I think that, you know, if I might say that so the, the, this book has ended up kind of being pushed by material that is trying to, in some ways, make or build or push or, or maybe um, try and fold a, a theory of the urban that is not where, where the subject of urban theory is not the individual, but it's kind of, it's the collective. And these claims to Juna are, again, they're social claims, they're collective claims, because, uh, you know, you cannot just be Juna on your own. You're Juna only because you, you know, you, you, you share a certain, you share certain kinds of desires and uh, with, with other people. So I think that, you know, a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the ways in which perhaps we've thought about the urban especially urban subjects and, you know, the construction, the constitution of urban subjectivity and agency and all of these other things in, in the urban environment, um, somehow still seem to, and certainly there's lots of interesting work that's happening that's pushing against this. But I think that thinking about the subject of urban theory entirely as an individuated subject uh, doesn't really work uh, in, in, um, you know, so 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 I feel like using these kinds of terms that people collectively use and imagine themselves uh, uh, and imagine for themselves becomes a way, I think, to to push a collective rather than an individual as the subject of urban theory. And I think that that's uh, because originality is never about an individual; it's always about a collective. You know, you you share a certain kind of collective expertise, or you share a certain kind of, uh, you know, migration history, or you share a certain kind of claim to a taxi trade. Uh, and I think that that Ola driver, you know, that, that, I, that I quote at the end, you know, you think I can't be Juna one day, is also a certain kind of, not, not really an individual claim, it's really a collective claim based on how a difference, perhaps a different structure of the taxi trade might be able to claim uh, a collective, um, you know, a collective future for the city. I don't know if how that wonderful. Helps. Yeah, I mean, if I were to uh, take the liberty of uh, using some taxi when speak, it, you know, in taxi when speak, you can't be Juna if you're not part of Jalu, right? Like, <laughs> uh, they're so in, they're so integral to each other. So the collectives that you're speaking of, in some way, are reflected in the in the Jalu, Jaluness, uh, if we can, you know, uh, corrupt languages like that. Uh, so actually, I really want to quickly also follow up the question about Juna with this question about Jalu as well, because it really uh, both helped me to think through with the ethnography and, um, you know, uh, read through the book with these sort of two anchors, so to say. Um, and, you know, I would, I would assume that you also became part of that Jalu as an ethnographer. Um, and my question, therefore, is that, you know, there's this right to refusal, right, that is so central 
uh, as you describe it in your book, to the whole tension and question about the reforming taxis and drivers in Mumbai, right? Um, which the drivers themselves are countering with the fact that even Uber and Ola app, the taxi aggregator app drivers can refuse a ride. Um, and particularly your attention to the idea of Indian automobility, I have sort of two, two questions, which one of which is, how would you describe the place of refusal as a labor right one, and perhaps more importantly, as a manifestation of care towards the drivers themselves? What does refusing tell us about the politics of the driver-passenger relation? Something I also would like to invite you to talk more about, uh, especially since, you know, all of us, like all of us, most of us, your own entry into this world is framed by a socially intimate relationship between you and the elderly driver whom you call Rashid. And as ethnographers of whom the right refusal is something to be constantly confronted with, uh, what did you make of it as one, a passenger, as an ethnographer, and as a member of this of this white jali? Yeah. Yeah, that's... That is such a such a beautiful question and such a critical one to not just to to my work in my book but also yeah much more much more broadly. So of course you know this question of refusal has become a very important I think uh, mode of analysis right. I mean you have people like Audra Simpson and, and and others who've done this remarkably well where they see refusal not only as a actual political practice, but also as a way to, to think and as a, as a kind of analytical mode. Uh, in this, you know, so refusal, you know, which, which I perhaps also should call, may, may call obstinacy. Um, in this context, you know, refusal is in fact an important form of, um, you know, for producing and maintaining other ways to do things, right? And refusal is also, it's it's a political practice for taxi drivers. So I'll give you, you know, I'll respond just to the interlocutors and then I'll, I'll mention a little bit about, uh, talk a little bit about the, the really important question you ask about ethnographic refusal, uh, right? So I, I came to this project or this research, not as a passenger. In fact, I did not sit in a taxi with any of these people until quite late into my research. So I came to this uh, as a, you know, sort of, and I, I mentioned this in, I think, the first uh, introduction, introductory chapter of the book. Uh, you know, I came to the community of taxi drivers that I, that I was working and living in uh, for, you know, as a, almost like a, you know, I don't want to reify this at all, but but as a as someone of a very different class, yes, um, who who whose relationship to the drivers here uh, was framed through my my class position. You know, one of these drivers used to actually um, drive for you know for um, for on and off for my for my family. And he had been a previous taxi driver, and he then brought into brought me into this community uh, of, of taxi drivers. And so I initially spent quite a bit of time, um, and I, I was very attentive a to the fact of sort of the the religious distinctions. You know, they're they're very pious Muslims. Women have very different kinds of expectations in this community. 
Uh, I was very aware of my, you know, very distinct class position. Uh, but, but like in many contexts in South Asia, you know, a certain kind of uh, patriarchal acceptance of who I was because people knew my father, right? And I say, my book is full of this, you know, who's your father? Who is this your, tere baap ka road kya hai? Is this your father's road? You know, so these kinds of like kinship terms come up again and again. Uh, so ethnographic, so I actually encountered very little, uh, even though I do have lots of places where I'm in the book where I'm talking about driving with people. Um, I was more interested actually in what happens outside the, the driving practice. Um, rather, you know, so what do taxi drivers do? What kind of expertise emerges when they're not on necessarily on, on the roads? So uh, I actually experienced very little. I did not observe a whole lot of ref- passenger refusal uh, or refusal of passengers, but I consistently heard refusal as a form of making, uh, you know, as, as a certain labor right, as you call it. What did emerge quite interestingly, so of course, refusal of rides is a very, very important critique in the public media, you know, drivers refuse rides, etc, etc. And this was actually the interesting thing. And, you know, Sneha, you might find this interesting, is that I, uh, this, the whole revamping of the taxi industry in Mumbai, um, in you know, which began in 2006 and then st- you know became very very intense uh, over the next three or four years, is that the reason that everybody wanted to reform is because they were they were sick of refusal, right? That taxi drivers uh, were refusing rides uh, at a at an inordinately high rate. So uh, this is when actually the taxi union drivers that I was in Mumbai, and this is how I actually got to Singapore. I actually traveled with many of these men uh, to gain training at the Singapore Civil Services College. Uh, And one of the things that they had been told to pay attention to in Singapore was refusal. And interestingly, one, so I did not observe this particular incident, but the after after it happened, you know, the evening it happened, the the association taxi association leader actually came back that evening to a meeting and he said, "Oh, guess what? I was standing there with the Singapore, you know, hailing a taxi outside some mall in Singapore, and guess what? The driver I was happened to be with the transport commissioner, and guess what? The driver refused the ride." So uh, he said, you know, so that showed even the transport commission. And then so what the transport commissioner then said is that, oh, that's an exception. But in fact, that is not an exception. Refusal is the form of, you know, people making choices about their work. And in places like Mumbai, uh, refusal is is really about, uh, you know, uh, making particular choices about when your shift will end and when it won't, because if you refuse, you know, you refuse a ride that takes you in a direction that is going to take you, you far away from home where you can't pass on the taxi to the next person, etc., etc. So refusal is both a political and also actually a material act. So uh, passenger, you know, refusal yeah, infuses uh, the the both the politics and and the and the material practices of being on the roads uh, as a taxi man or as a passenger. 
And the refusal as an ethnographer is an interesting. So is that, are you suggesting, you know, I don't know. I think that I was very, very, um, you know, I was very um, attentive to kind of the ethics of this project. Um, and the fact that, in fact, you know, my interlocutors could, in fact, refuse me um, whenever they wanted. Um, but I think that, you know, and I also wonder materially, had I, had I approached this project as initially as a passenger, because passengers are refused and they're, agent, they're, they're objects of refusal. Uh, and I found that entering the field as, uh, you know, as you say, uh, uh, Bhumika, as you know, I certainly do not think I became a Jalu member. In fact, I constantly felt like, a, you know, completely out of the Jalu in some ways, not because I was not emotional, not because I was not accepted as a member of the Jalu, but because I actually lacked the kind of mastery that is required to be in the Jalu. Uh, so, you know, so it's, 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 uh, so I, I do think that uh, my, my, entry and acceptance into this this community emerged out of the fact that I did not come from an object of um, of refusal which is the passenger uh, in fact I tried very hard to not be passenger in the car uh, I only was a passenger at, at times when people actually wanted me to be there as a passenger and obviously I didn't want to disrupt their own commerce and trade and all of that so I often would jump out of the car if and and so I, I positioned myself very much not as a passenger, but as a, you know, as a, you know, as an uncomfortable Jalu member, because uh, I, I actually had no expertise. And in fact, in some of the chapters of the book, you know, even the, I think, especially the chapters, uh, certainly the chapters with, the, with car repair and things like that, but also chapters where I, you know, where I actually focus on a lot of the women in the community. Uh, you know, there's a lot of mastery and expertise of various different kinds of work and labor, which I never quite master. And uh, which, even though I watched and I had, you know, plenty of training, etc. on, I just never, I just never learned it. Because again, this goes back to kind of my more sensory analysis is that I, I, you know, I, I tried to do kind of a sensory uh, participation but I was never able to, to actually gain expertise. Uh, so I would not say that I actually was, became a Jalu member, not because I was refused, but because I actually simply did not have the, the sensory attunement of being Juna. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I wanted to say a couple of things. One was, I think this issue of refusal is so interesting because um, I also loved how in the book your uh, your interlocutors talked about how different their refusal is read by, you know, the media or like people at large because like Ola or Uber, the refusal is mediated, you know, through an app. So the refusal isn't as personal, even though people do complain all the time about Ola and Uber drivers cancelling, but the, the stigma of refusal, I think gets attached much more directly to the body of the uh, of the Mumbai taxi, the Kali Pili, in ways I think precisely because it's so unmediated in in that sense, you know. And I thought that was very interesting. But uh, you know, you began one to talk. 
Yeah. Yeah. One more thing I want to just mention about refusal, you know, so refusal, of course, is not just, uh, and, and you see this in certain points of the book, that refusal is not just an act. It's, you know, the, the, that among taxi drivers, and I found this in, in all of my work, is that, you know, taxi drivers, yes, there's the passenger, there's the driver, but taxi drivers are embedded in, like, these larger political and social, uh, uh, you know, uh, worlds where there are many other forms of refusal. You know, there was a great deal of refusal of kind of police power, for example. You know, there's a chapter in the, there's a piece in the book where, you know, the many of the drivers, that was just representative of one, but it was a very common act of, you know, tearing up the, the chalan. You're given a taxi ticket, tear it up. It's a, you know, it's a refusal to be incorporated into uh, the corruption of the state uh, or the, the, the power of the state in some ways. You know, so, so refusals were not just about rides. They were actually refusals of all other kinds. You know, I'm refusal to get rid of the car, refusal to join another particular kind of trade, refusal to, uh, you know, to, to go into debt. Uh, so refusal functions in this community in multiple different ways as a form of, uh, you know, as, as a form of, you know, saying, this is not the life I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, something that you brought up a little while ago was uh, the role of sensation. And I think one of the key themes of the book, um, along with refusal being one of them, is is sensation and its role in world making. So at the outset itself, you write about how you're invested in what you refer to as, uh, and I think you're borrowing from someone's work here, I'm forgetting whose, but you refer to sensuous scholarship, right? And how you're invested in writing um, uh, writing sensuous scholarship. So could you tell us a little bit about what such a scholarship entails and what does thinking sensorially do to the way we imagine driving work in particular and automobility in the city? Yeah. So, you know, I, um, so sensory, so I have been quite, again, uh, inspired in many ways by the, the turn, the sensory turn in anthropology. And uh, particularly by what people like, you know, there's this anthropologist like David House, for example, who makes a case for, you know, what he calls a full-bodied anthropology. Which, is, which engages all of the senses. Now, we've been, in anthropology, of course, we've been interested in questions of the body. And uh, lo- a, lot of it, a lot of this has come from, you know, traces its genealogies to, to what, you know, phenomenology and things like that. But I found, again, in the work that I was doing, that phenomenological approaches, again, explicitly focus on a certain kind of subjective and individual experience. And um, that, that what I found a lot of, you know, driving work or this kind of automobility, what, what I call automobility, uh, that, that is, a, is a thinking about automobility by studying and by being around and by making sense of the world with people who live around cars all the time. You know, that, that, that at the end of the day, you know, that people's sort of, uh, you know, how people, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to say this, that 
that people's cultural and social experiences, unlike kind of the Geertzian idea that, you know, it sits in their heads and that's how they make meaning, uh, sensory ethnography actually departs from, from that kind of method, methodology of, of trying to read people's culture as a text and trying to understand these kinds of things by just making sense of the world along with other people. And uh, so I found that, um, you know, that that thinking about or, or observing what goes goes on out there in the environment between what people are doing and the objects that they are interacting with uh, became a interest became useful for me to actually understand how the taxi trade works. So you know, and and what was interesting to me is because the taxi is such a public object uh, that all of the kind of sensing that was going on was was public and i found that this was a useful way for me to recognize that you know sensing unlike feeling and all these other things is a public act and uh, you know in, in sensory anthropology and that the, the focus or, or sensing what i'm calling sense sen, you know partic- what not what i call but what other scholars like paul stoller call uh, participant sensation or sensuous scholarship is the focus becomes on process and practice uh, over over everything else. And, um, you know, and I think that that's, I, I found that that's really what people were doing when they were driving and when they were repairing cars and when they were, uh, you know, when they were trying to build flourishing livelihoods. They were essentially, what they were doing is they were in fact, uh, you know, Inter, you know, they were in fact sensing things together, um, and but at the same time, you know, they were using particular kinds of senses and sensation distinguished from one another. But often the senses were in conflict. Often they coalesced. So, um, you know, and and what what is quite important, I think, is what what a lot of the sensory anthropologists do, where, you know. I found that driving, it's, you know, those of you, those of us who learn how to drive, of course, are all about, um, you know, are all about, um, you know, looking at, watch the road, right? Which is this wanted status of vision in the, really Western theory is all about vision. Vision is in the, the top of the sensory hierarchy and it often stands for all the other senses. But yet, people who were driving for a living were constantly referring to other kinds of senses and sensation that were important to being a successful driver. Uh, so, so, you know, and these were all collective sensation. You know, people could understand each other by, by, by uh, you know, by describing or by exploring their worlds. Uh, and you know this because the senses are social. Uh, I I also felt like this was a you know useful way to 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 push again our understandings of the city and what people do and what people say in a more collective rather than individuated structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and following on this line of discussion, I wanted to touch upon one of my favorite chapters in the book, which is chapter five in which you answer the puzzle via Chilia drivers so deeply attached to their premier Padminis. And what I found so compelling is that you depart from conventional explanations of status around car ownership or 
a threadbare focus on how embodied experiences of driving can automatically like glue people to their cars and you instead offer a much more expansive analysis of senses in their myriad manifestations towards caring right for their cars and dekhbhal and caring becomes the center point of your focus on why sensation matters when it comes to repair work and how that leads to these sorts of attachments to their cars um and you show how touch is so central to the repair work of padmini's how smelling and listening attentively to the vehicle matter and i i really like i was blown away by this chapter uh, i would love for you to dwell a little bit on how chilia drivers tinker with their cars and uh, why paying attention to the sensory technologies of care matters yeah so you know again this question of care you know i mean care has become of course a very important kind of analytical mode uh, across uh, many many fields and for for good reason and i found you know so so the book of course is discussing these questions of you know care as a as a form of um, you know as a form of looking after looking after your family but also looking after your car and uh, the the terms that are used for the care of the car and the car of the, and the care of the car and the care of the family are very often the same which is the the term dekhbhal now dekh of course in 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 hindi and gujarati and many uh, you know many many uh, north indian languages uh, and and west indian uh, like western indian languages uh, actually translates to to see to look right again so i you know There were there are so many sort of sensory metaphors that we use in our everyday lives that we don't always uh, that, that we take for granted. But when we start to look to to understand what we actually do with those, when we say we're looking after something or looking after somebody else, uh, so I became so you know I became so so absolutely enchanted in some ways. with how people looked after their their cars and um this was also again a question of you know but but they were not just looking they were they were caring and touching and you know and and feeling for what might be wrong what might you know what what they could do better etc and this is actually again one of those questions of uh you know i was in anthropology you know sometimes we do interviews and all of these kinds of things and i know i had an advisor at one point who said you know don't don't pay so much attention to what people say what do and this is where i you know this project actually there was a lot of i realized there was very little very little talking in these places that were off the road in fact drivers barely even talked to each other in these places uh which is odd to think of right taxi drivers are very talkative people they know everything they and all of this but somehow when these drivers were off the road uh most of their time was actually spent either resting which is again sort of a sensory regeneration or working on their cars and so you know these kinds of exp- so i started to see particularly in those chapters on repair what kinds of expertise and mastery are drivers developing that are not simply in the spaces of driving and what i also really you know coming back to this question of care i also started to see in the work that they're doing you know why are they so attached to these cars i started to see that you know mastery and expertise 
are modes of living and doing things that don't always have to be wielded, you know, otherwise things like expertise and you have all of this work, you know, wonderful work in, in anthropology and political science and all of these other things where you have, you know, I mean, Tim Mitchell's wonderful rule of experts. And I actually found that this was a space in which mastery and experts were expertise were not to be wielded over others, but they were to be shared and understood collectively. So it's not that people, you know, so, so these are not forms of, of sensory forms of knowing that can then, that become weapons. But they were sensory forms of knowing that, that were about, uh, you know, sharing and helping other people in the trade be able to continue to, to care for cars. Uh, so to me, that's really where, what became most interesting. And, you know, the, so you will see, I think there's one chapter in the book that's entirely on just the, the, the kind of sensory forms of repair. And this was, you know, while, of course, there's different kinds of knowledge. Everybody has, everybody knows something, but not everybody knows everything. But ultimately, everybody can kind of sense what to do when the car breaks down. So, uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if that answers the, the, the question, but, uh you know, that's kind of where care comes into, into, into play. The care always was structured around uh, this question of, you know, mastery and expertise, but they were careful and caring because they were not necessarily wielded uh, to, to um, yeah, you know, to, to kind of cause for violent reasons. But of course, this is not to say that there were not forms of social control and all kinds of disappointments and things like that. But care and caring, it was also very careful work. And uh, yeah, so I think that's, again, you know, that's how care operates in this in this book, um, is to, to think about the sensory dimensions, but also the fact that, you know, that careful work is, uh, is possible uh, in, in domains that don't necessarily have to be, um, you know, have to be used in kind of violent ways. Hmm. Uh, thank you so much, Tarani. Uh, I mean, there is so much more that we can talk about the book and, you know, uh, of what all it offers to us as, as anthropologists, as urban ethnographers, as women urban ethnographers, um, as automobilistas, as you as you uh, have suggested often, so this is. I mean, thank you so much for your time and uh, for this book and for this conversation. And before we, you know, let you go, uh, we would love to hear what are you working on now and what can we uh, sort of see coming next. Look forward to from you. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Um... Thank you all so much. This was just a just a, a gift of a conversation. I really appreciate it and the, the opportunity to to really think about you know what I've been doing and absolutely Bhumika, you know as a you know it, it's odd for women to be doing work on on driving and cars, right? And I often face that uh, myself. You know, it's like why well, why are you doing this work? But um, but but I, I do the work with, with pride and love and care. But my next project, you know, of course, so the next, as I was, you know, so this was a book that came out of several years of field work when the taxi industry was just jumping around all over the place, uh, certainly in Mumbai and India, but also, you know, other parts of the world. 
So I actually am, uh, several chapters on Uber and Ola actually did not make their way into this, uh, into this book. So I'm actually writing a small book on kind of the, the sensory technologies of the, you know, the, the road and the algorithm when it comes to these people. Uh, to the Ola and Uber drivers, but it's really structured largely around urban space because in Mumbai, Uber, Uber and Ola drivers have this kind of imaginary that they are always sent to this place called Kalyan, which is uh, outside the kind of municipality of Mumbai. But, you know, so that's their, their lack of refusal leads them to this place Kalyan from which they can never find a ride back. So the book actually is starts with a kind of history of Kalyan uh, and then moves to why it has become this kind of space, you know, for the, especially for Ola and Uber drivers, this kind of no, no person's land uh, uh, in terms of transportation. So, but, you know, and it, yeah, it's also, it also looks at some of the, the unionization efforts and all of that on, on the part of Ola and Uber. So it's a very small little book, but that's, I, that's not, that, you know, that, that'll be a small book, but I'm actually now working on a project finally, uh, you know, this is how do people end up in nostalgic places, but I'm working on a new project actually on the Kartarpur corridor uh, on the borders of India and uh, Indian Punjab and Pakistan. And I'm finally locating, I'm actually, so I started this work in 2000 and I actually started it in 2000 and to say 15 long before the corridor actually opened uh, because i was located in what is my native place called dera baba nanak so i'm finally returning to actually doing field work and this is again talking about linguistic nostalgias and things that i did my first project in marathi which was a language i learned formally uh, my second project was done in a combination of Hindi and Gujarati, which were both languages that just kind of, you know, I, I, I acquired simply because of my socialization. And I'm finally now going back to working in a language that actually is a intimate language for me, which is in Punjabi. Uh, and, and yeah, so I'm really doing this project that's, look, you know, working with, initially it started off, there are these two um, gurdwaras on both sides of the corridor. Um, and for a long time, you know, pilgrims used to just look and watch through telescopes. They, that was kind of the pilgrimage. It was this telescopic form of pilgrimage. Uh, but now that this corridor has opened, I'm actually, you know, following the kinds of urban and regional development that's happening there. You know, I'm working actually with taxi and bus drivers and politicians and musicians uh, who sing the the. Uh, the kirtans at these two gurdwaras. So, yeah, so it's a project on, you know, how a corridor becomes, a, how a road becomes a corridor, how a corridor becomes a place of life or a peace infrastructure. So um, that's that's what I'm doing. That sounds so interesting and, you know, can't wait to read what comes out of it. I also remember you mentioning a project on rest that you were doing with some other folks on rest stops and I was recently attending a talk by Noshin Anwar uh, and they were also talking about rest and shade which came up uh, a few times in this book as well right like these um, cool areas in the city that are uh, far and few and how taxi drivers kind of find them but I was thinking of of that project on yeah, rest. yeah Noshin's lab is doing some really terrific work on, on uh, rest and heat and these kinds of things 
Yeah, I am actually working on a project with two colleagues who are archaeologists, actually. Uh, one who works on a, on a major road system in Mexico and another who works on a road system in, uh, in Cambodia. And um, I am working on the, the, the Grand Trunk Road, the GT Road. In, in, uh, in, we are, the, the, the road I'm working on is between Delhi and Amritsar. So we are kind of mapping these rest stops, both in the historical uh, archive and in the contemporary period to see how people, you know, we, we think of rest as kind of a radical thing. And it really has been through history. You know, movement is radical, but rest is even more so. Um, so, yeah, so that's a more collaborative project that we are, yeah, we've been working on and hopefully we'll get some big funding to actually implement the big pieces of it. But it's a collaboration to think about how, you know, different subfields in anthropology can actually develop concepts together, which I think is pretty rare, uh, even though we sit in the same departments and we all work on roads and road systems. We've never actually come together to think about, um, you know, how we might work together on things that are of interest to all of us. So, yeah, that's an exciting project. And I've learned a lot, by the way. Uh, working with my colleagues in archaeology because they have this really deep historical sense of um, of so many of these things that that we see that I as a sort of more you know contemporary sociocultural anthropologist see uh, in the contemporary world. So it's been a really it's it's been a great it's been a really great intellectual uh, collaboration. So that's that's a different yeah that's not an individual project but it's a collaborative project. I hope I can do more of those kinds of collaborative projects um, because I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's where you learn a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're recording this on a Friday and I hope all of us get to rest this weekend, speaking of rest. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Tarani, for taking time out again and doing this. Really learned a lot, both from the book and from this conversation. And I think every conversation with you has been um, very fruitful in that sense and I look forward to many many more in the future ditto to everything that Sneha said thank you so much Tarani thank you and I look forward to both of your books on, on driving and automobility uh, very soon <laughs> thank you